From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. And I'm Khalil Bendi. Renowned Israeli historian Ilan Pape is the author of numerous books on the history of Zionism, including his seminal work, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, The History of Modern Palestine, and The Israel-Palestine Question. In his new book, On Palestine, co-authored with Noam Chomsky, Ilan Pape debates issues spanning from the BDS movement to the one-state solution. I spoke with Professor Pape about this new work. Ilan, uh, your most recent book, co-authored with Noam Chomsky and titled On Palestine, offers a nice contrast between the old and the new left perspectives on the question of Palestine between two generations of thinking on this question. One of the most marked contrasts is the fundamental question of the so-called two-state solution, which uh, much of the left, the liberal left in this country, following in the footsteps of the revered Eminence Gris of the American left, Dr. Chomsky, essentially abandons the moral high ground of equal rights for all in the name of pragmatism. You speak of an old conversation versus a new conversation and talk of a paradigm shift. Tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah. The idea emanated from my thinking that whenever I go around outside of Palestine and talk to people, people hesitate about this idea of the two states and one state and say to me, you know, it's up to the people themselves to decide. Uh, it's not our role outside of Palestine or outside of the Palestinian or Israeli context to give advice to people what is the uh, the right or wrong solution. And I usually answer, and that's the point I make in the book, that it's not a question of whether you uh, support that or other solution only. Of course, it's part of it. But the most important aspect of this is do you understand the implication of the paradigm of two-state solution? Because otherwise you are entangled in question, is this feasible, is one state feasible, which is not yet the debate in my mind. The main debate is what lies behind the idea of a two-state solution. And what lies behind the idea of a two-state solution is, is if the Jewish national movement and the Palestinian national movement arrived more or less at the same time to the same place and uh, were unable to, to settle... Uh, the question to whom the land belongs, and were unable to, to reconcile. And what you needed is kind of a grown-up in the form of the United States and before that uh, Britain that would help these two sides to uh, reconcile on the basis of a kind of an American business-like approach where you divide the land, you divide the responsibility, and so on. And that's a, a very wrong way of reading the whole history uh, of Palestine uh, since the arrival of the Zionist movement there in the late 19th century until today. This is not a conflict between two national movements fighting over the same uh, piece of land. This is a, a struggle between a settler movement, a settler colonialist movement, which arrived in the late 19th century in Palestine, and tries, and still tries today, to colonize Palestine uh, by having most of the land with as few of the native people on it as possible. And the struggle of the native people is an anti-colonialist struggle. 
So you have to come back to any historical case studies you remember of an anti-colonialist movement fighting a colonialist power and ask yourself at any given moment was the idea of partitioning the land between the colonizer and the colonized portrayed as a reasonable solution, especially by people who were on the left or saw themselves as conscientious members of their society? And the answer is a resounding no. Of course, you would not support the division of Algeria between the French settlers and the native uh, Algerians. And even in places where you had settler colonialism, uh, namely where you had white people who had nowhere to go in a way, like in the tip of Africa, in South Africa, if you would suggest today as a progressive person that you should divide South Africa between the white population and the African population, uh, you would be regarded at best as insane and at worst as someone who is insincere and, and, and a fascist. The fact that this logic, which is so clear to many people on any other place in the world, somehow fails to work in the case of Palestine, and I think that's why it was so important for me to explain that part of the problem is what I call the old orthodoxy, the old uh, language we used, even as progressive people, even as people who supported the Palestinians on the issue of Palestine, the language of the two states, which actually was a language that did not describe aptly the reality on the ground in Palestine. One fundamental problem that you raise is that unlike in the fight against apartheid where opponents of apartheid had no qualms about being against the actual notion, the actual ideology of apartheid, a lot of the solidarity movement with Palestine dare not denounce the nature of Zionism. And whenever that happens, it's considered or called anti-Semitism in Europe and the U.S., Tell us more why that is a fundamental flaw of the movement. Yes, definitely. This is a, an important example. It is connected to another term. Well, maybe we'll come back to it later in the conversation that I suggest. And instead of just talking about one-state solution, I, I suggest talking about the regime change. Yes, uh, yes. We'll talk about that. Maybe we'll probably come back to this. But the two are, are connected in the sense that when we analyze the situation in Palestine, we, when we ask ourselves why were Palestinians expelled massively in 1948, why were the Palestinians in Israel put under military rule between 1948 and 1967, why was this military rule transferred from inside Israel to the occupied West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, uh, why are the Bedouins in the south of Israel and the Palestinian villages in the north of Israel today are subject, like those who live in Jerusalem, to a policy of Judaization, namely of expropriation of land and strangulation in their own places of habitation? And then, of course, when we add to this the question, why does Israel refuse to allow the refugees to return and uh, imposes such an inhuman siege on Gaza, when we ask all these questions and we, we look for the reason why is it done, we know now better, I think, than we ever knew before that the reason for this is ideological. It's a Zionist ideology. All these policies are tactics which attempt to keep the land of Palestine as part of Israel without 
calculating demographically the Palestinians as part of the citizenship of that land. And uh, this idea of uh, separating uh, the rights of the, or segregating the rights of the people uh, is familiar to us. Now, this is an ideology. This is not uh, a tactical response to a problem. This is not just a, a policy. It's, it's not even a strategy. This is a vision, a Zionist vision shared by all the Zionist uh, parties. Now, this is the main, almost exclusive obstacle to peace and reconciliation in Israel and Palestine. And not addressing it, but only addressing an Israeli policy here or there, would be similar to addressing certain uh, policies of South Africa during the heyday of apartheid without touching apartheid at all. And this, of course, is complicated even further that not only do politicians and mainstream media and academia people refuse to uh, uh, acknowledge that the main reason for the inhumanity that rages in Palestine in the last century is the Zionist ideology. Not only do they, not, do they ignore it, they accuse anyone who does it of being an anti-Semitic, as if, if you text apartheid as an ideology during the heydays of this uh, dark regime, uh, you would be accused of being an anti-Christian. As you probably noticed in the book, I'm even more bewildered by this because large sections of the society in the Western world already understand it. And they are being condemned by their own political elites for being anti-Semites, despite the fact, by the way, that many of them are Jews anyway. Well, then they're self-hating <laughs> Jews. So yeah. there's no escaping this no, stigma. No, it's, in fact, if, it's a case that if you, if you sort of look at it with cold, sober eyes, it's insane. It is really insane to accuse progressive, for example, progressive Jewish activists in the United States who stood at the forefront of the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s. We initiated the solidarity movement against apartheid in South Africa. We're vocal in the opposition to imperialism in Vietnam, in Chile, in other places. To accuse these people when they apply the same human rights universal yardstick to Israel, to accuse them of being self-hating Jews, for instance, show you that this is just an abnormality, and it is, can only be, probably, can be produced by intimidation, lobbying, and pressure, and probably quite a high share of Islamophobia. Otherwise, it's very difficult, logically, to explain why this very humane a normal way of looking at the situation is treated in such a way. In your book on Palestine, co-authored with Noam Chomsky, you speak of this term, peace orthodoxy, which you accuse of being more of a racist than pragmatic tendency. You go as far as saying that among the pushers of a two-state solution, quote, the dictionary of the peace orthodoxy sprang out of an almost religious belief in the two-state solution, and that comes straight out of a contemporary version of Orwell's 1984. Yeah, yeah, it's a newspeak. I mean, I'm using Orwell here in his reference to newspeak, the kind of language that does not only 
disable us from calling a spade a spade. It's called exactly the opposite, and usually a cruel reality is described as a benevolent one in, in the new speak of Orwell. And I think the same is true about these words, which for me are sacred. I mean, peace, justice, reconciliation are three of the sacred, the most sacred words in our vocabulary as human beings. They really represent the highest form of human ambition to to live peacefully with one another. Now, to use these languages in order to cover up for a process on the ground which achieves exactly the opposite. Instead of reconciliation, it sows more dissent and animosity and hatred. Instead of peace, it provides, it creates war. And instead of justice, it maintains an apartheid system. When this, these words are used as a protective shield to describe a reality that is exactly the opposite of what they mean, this for me is, is even worse than racism in a way. This is the kind of the Orwellian nightmare that I have when people begin to use words in such a way. Now, I think what happened, and I try to describe that in the introduction to the book, is that the idea of a two-state solution began as a Zionist Israeli ploy after 67 to reconcile a very simple problem. They have kicked out a million of Palestinians in 1948, but because of their territorial appetite, they wanted to take those parts of Palestine that they did not occupy in 1948, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But with the territory came another one million and a half Palestinians today, almost three million Palestinians. And in order to reconcile the fact that you now have the whole of the land, but you still are left with a demographic nightmare as far as the Zionist movement was concerned, one of the means they have used was the peace process. The peace process was used as a kind of a message to the world which says, as you can see, we are now robbing the Palestinians in the occupied territories of any basic human rights and civil rights. As you can see, we are expropriating the land. We are building Jewish settlements on them. We are expelling them quite massively. And we imprison them, even if they dare just to, to raise the Palestinian flag. Now, what the peace process means for the Israelis is a message to the world. This is all temporary. Of course, when peace comes, all these measures will be removed. Now, of course, you can understand why people on the Western left would have succumbed to this explanation after five years of occupation or ten years of occupation. One can still see why one could still be hopeful that the Israelis mean it or that the world has the power to force Israel to mean it. But after almost 50 years, to still stick to this idea, which is an Israeli kind of ploy to uh, deepen the colonization of the areas they've occupied in 1967 and to wipe out any possibility of negotiating the areas they've occupied in 1948 or the return of the refugees, to do that is really to be very uh, stagnant and dogmatic in one's perception of the reality. And you would have expected critical voices on the American and European left to be a bit more alert to the kind of trap they have found themselves in, which Israel very cleverly has put there in the way. You say that ethnic cleansing is in the very DNA of the Jewish state, so-called, and that change cannot come from within. 
and that it will have to come, as in South Africa, before it, from outside. Thus, the need for a worldwide movement to force Israel or to force a regime change, as you were saying, in Israel. Tell us more about this regime change idea, which out here in the States has got a rather negative connotation. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> I connected to another kind of way that proper language was fouled yes. by people. I think when masses went on demonstrations in Egypt and elsewhere, in Tunisia, in the Arab world, and demanded that the regime would fall, I think most of us would identify with it. That yeah. We thought this was a non-violent, massive movement of people who said to their government, you are not democratic, you are authoritarian, we want your regime to change. But the only regime change that worked, as we know, was the one that was toppled by the American Air Force and Air Power together with its allies in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the horrific consequences of this can be seen today. On the other hand, we've seen the fall of authoritarian regimes in Latin America, in uh, Eastern Europe, and regime change there was not always a bloody attack by foreign forces against the will of the people. So regime change is, is what you make it. It's by itself, it's not a negative term. It, it depends which regime you change and how you change it. Yes. And I just said that if this is now a legitimate conversation among the strategists in America, among the policy makers, and they claim, although I, like you, I'm very doubtful how sincere they are, but they claim that they would like to see non-democratic regime turns into the democratic regime. Putting aside the cynicism about it, in some cases, it's amazing that when, again, as in the case of ideology, when you raise this possibility about Israel, you are immediately branded again as someone who wants to see the destruction of the Jewish people. But for me, it's even more than that. I'm aware of the balance of power. And even with the greatest help from the outside to change the reality in Israel, it would not be an easy project to convince the millions of Jewish settlers who live here today, already in the third generation, to give up the privileges, the power of what they have. And of course, an international pressure on them can help do that. But even more than that, uh, we have to realize that building an international pressure from the outside, as any Palestinian living on the ground today will tell you, is a very lengthy and slow process. And while we wait for that pressure from the outside to materialize, the pace of destruction on the ground has accelerated. And we are facing a danger where even when we will succeed in recruiting that effective international pressure, there would be very little to salvage on the ground. And because of that, I think it's also important to have realistic goals for the movement that struggles from within. Uh, we have created a one-state movement, which we call the ODS, the One Democratic State, all over Palestine, including in Ramallah, in Jaffa, in Haifa. And we, Palestinians and Jews, we strongly believe that we should also achieve uh, small steps towards a regime change that if we cannot force the government to change its apartheid laws, its uh, policies of uh, ethnic cleansing and in Gaza of genocide, we will try and create enclaves that indicate that there's an alternative way of living, that we will continue to resist these, these policies as a massive movement. It's not just the outside pressure here that will work. I think it's very important to set 
a realistic goal and a worthy goal for the people who struggle on the ground. If you listen to the Palestinian Authority, the only goal Palestinians should fight for is a Bantustan in Ramallah. This is not igniting anyone's imagination, as you can as you can see. It does not terrify the Israelis. On the contrary, they're very happy with this as a kind of a ultimate goal of the Palestinian struggle. And it does not offer anything to progressive Jews who understand that they live in a settler colonialist society, but it's still their homeland, and they would like to live in a more just society. So I think the regime change here is is not only the what you expect the outside world to do. It's the kind of thing you want to do on the ground, even if you can only move very slowly towards this or only one step at a time. It unites people. It gives them a clear target and sways them away from false paradigms of, of peace, such as the two-state solution. You just mentioned the term apartheid and the parallel between South Africa and Palestine is indeed both striking and inspiring for the future. But Chomsky, in this book on Palestine, replies to you that things aren't that simple and that in South Africa, a couple of things were different. Settler colonialism was not, as it is in Palestine, accomplished in the ways to replace the native population. And that in South Africa, the Cuban military intervention in the 80s managed to help defeat apartheid, even militarily. And again, the equivalent may not be apparent in Palestine. What do you reply to these two criticisms by Noam Chomsky? Well, I think he's right. And there are many other differences between the two case studies. But I think where, where Chomsky and I differ is this dim line that I think that it was the late Edward Said who was the best person to define the dim line, much better than I would now. But there's a dim line between a scholarly analysis and the analysis of an activist. From a scholarly point of view, there are many aspects of the reality in South Africa which are different from those in Palestine. I could mention the, uh, the lack of any equivalent to the Jewish lobby in the case of South Africa. I can mention also the Holocaust as a game changer in the history of Palestine, and there's nothing equivalent to this in the case of South Africa. And of course, there are differences in the way the apartheid regime manifested itself in South Africa and in the way the ethnic cleansing paradigm of, of structure in Israel was working. But these are minute issues that do not really undermine the basic comparison, which is the most important one. And there are three issues here which I think can only be understood if you see your role not just as a scholar who compares two case studies, but as an activist who wants to be inspired by a successful struggle and transfer this success to a struggle that so far has not been successful. And the three points are the following. A is the international image of apartheid South Africa and the international image of Israel. In many cases, what Israel is doing is far worse than South Africa has done. This has been acknowledged by South African leaders. This has been acknowledged by many conscientious people around the world. So why can't we receive the same kind of international condemnation of Israel as a rogue state as we could in the case of South Africa? And one of the reasons that we can't do it is because we haven't done enough towards achieving it. It's not impossible. As the BDS movement has shown in its very short history, with its amazing achievements so far, we can definitely do it. 
The second point is the inspiration that the younger generation of activists, especially in the West, received from the days of the struggle in the pro-ANC or the anti-apartheid movement in the West. The Israeli Apartheid Week has transformed the American and, and European campuses into spaces where Israeli official spokespersons are not welcome. This could not have been done if we would have stuck to a kind of a minute academic comparison between apartheid South Africa and Israel. This could only be done when people understood that the same energy that infuriated decent people in the West about the realities in South Africa infuriates people now about the reality in Palestine, and there was no need to invent the wheel. Even if, as many scholars have shown, the apartheid in Israel was a bit different from the apartheid in South Africa. And thirdly, and the most important point of view to my mind, it's something to do with family names and first name. The family name is racism. South African apartheid was racist, a racist society. Israel is a racist society. Yes, they have different first names, but they belong to the same family. And this family is outcast, at least officially, all around the world, except in one case. And you cannot highlight this exceptionalism if you don't show the last case of exceptionalism that was successfully challenged. And I think that's why it's so important not to stick always to the minute facts, to the scholarly, careful comparing of categories and subcategories, and sometimes allow yourself to be swept by the energy that comes from the activists. And that energy uh, sometimes intuitively, not academically, intuitively realizes what is comparable and what is not comparable, and what is inspirational and what is not inspirational. You know, I'm editing a book that compares South Africa to Israel. And scholars there show the differences Man, in much more detailed uh, manner than, than Norm describes in, in the book. However, I think what is common to all these scholars is an understanding that dealing in the comparative study with South Africa opened their eyes about the possibilities in Palestine, changed the way they framed the reality in Palestine. In fact, it is the South African model, if you want, or case study, uh, that enabled us to just blow away the two-state solution, not just as an impossible settlement, but one, a very dangerous one. And I don't think you could have had this perspective unless you understood also how the settler colonialist movement worked in South Africa. Again, in opposition to the more, quote-unquote, pragmatic Chomsky, uh, you place not only the right of return for all Palestinians at the heart of an eventual solution to the Palestinian question, but also reparations for what happened to the Palestinians over the past 60-plus years. Yeah. Explain to us how this is not necessarily just a utopian dream yeah. and how these yeah. two essential conditions are central to a true solution for the future of Palestine-Israel. Yes, indeed. I think my departure point on the right of return is very different from those who would assess it pragmatically. Namely, is it feasible? or even in the, on the question, uh, which anyway is debatable, does Israel have, doesn't have the capacity to absorb such a large number of people should all the refugees want to, to come back? I think this is not now the, the issue, and that's not the reason we are not bringing up, and we all have been bringing up the issue of right of return. The right of return is a symptom 
of the racist nature of the Zionist regime in Israel. That's the main problem. The objection of Israel to the right of return stems from the same ideological reasoning that uh, lies behind the Judaization policy in the Galilee, the destruction of Bedouin villages in the Nakab, in the south of Israel, from the Bantustanization of the West Bank uh, and the ghettoization of Gaza. It stems from the same reason, and as a Zionist, you always wanted it from the late 19th century till today. You want to have as much of the land as possible with as few people as possible. And therefore, when you support the right of return, you're not only recognize an, an individual right that the international community sanctions in, in Resolution 194 from the 11th of December 1948, and you are not only adhere to all the international conventions about the refugees' right of return, no less important, you refuse to accept as legal, as moral, and as politically acceptable the idea that the native people have no right to be in their own homeland. And I think that's the main issue. Now, of course, and again, I come to the difference between academic work and an activist perspective. Academics will tell you, and rightly so, that if you do an anthropological analysis among refugees uh, in refugee camps, among Palestinians who live in exilic communities, in places where some of them are even, even made it, you know, made it personally, you will get absolutely different interpretation how they view the implementation of the right of return. Of course, people would have different view if they are now refugees for the second time in Lebanon from the destroyed Yarmouk refugee camp. Mm. And if they live in Syria, York, yes. yeah, they would have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. But they will all, but this is not the point. The, the point of the right of return is not at this moment its feasibility. Is, is it pragmatic given the fact that Israel is against it? No, it is what does it indicate? What does it indicate? And we had a horrific example for that, that, of course, the Western media has totally ignored, and I think on purpose. And I don't know, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the book, but I did mention it recently in an article. The only country neighboring Syria that did not receive one refugee, the only country, was Israel. All the other neighbors of Syria, with all their internal problems, with all their poverty, with all their more negative aspects of, of their regimes and so on, did not reject the refugees of Syria and gave them a shelter. The only country was the richest neighbor of Syria, and it did not even stretch its hand from a humanitarian point of view, forget about politics, to say to the people who live in Yarmouk, we know that your brothers and sisters, and I'm not using it metaphorically, the real brothers and sisters, and their nephews and their cousins live in the Galilee and are waiting for you to host you, to give you a temporary solution to the inferno that you are in. But this shows you where the right of return is. And, and as I mentioned, I think in the book, definitely mentioned in other places, there are a quarter of a million Palestinian internal refugees. Israel refuses to allow even one of them to return to their demolished uh, villages. So it all comes from the same place. So if you use pragmatic reasons to explain why the right of return is utopian, is not uh, feasible, you say that to oppose 
Zionist racism is utopian, is not realistic. Uh, okay, if this is your point of view, that's your point of view. I find fighting racism the most realistic, most less utopian mission I've taken upon myself as a grown-up. So it's for you both a question of principle, of universal values, but at the same time it is the ground and the fundament, the basis for something that might actually work in the future. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there is, first of all, there's a famous research by Salman Abu Sitta who showed that most of the refugees can be settled uh, in their original places and not to remove even one of the Jews who live there. But, and there are mechanisms for how to settle a return. It has been done before. And in order to heal the wounds, not, not only in Palestine, in order to heal the wounds in, in the, whole, the rest of the Arab world, you will need to have a closure of the Palestinian refugee problem. And the only way is at least to recognize the individual right of every one of them, even if many or few, we don't know, will decide to implement it. If you begin with the problem of implementation in a country that very gladly accepted one million ex-Russian Jews without any infrastructural problem, then you are just falling into the trap of avoiding the question, why does Israel reject the right of return? Not whether the right of return is possible or feasible. And I think, of course, it's possible and it's feasible. Peace is possible. Reconciliation is possible. We've seen it in, in South Africa. It's only what is sometimes very difficult is to convince the people who have all the natural resources in their hands, all the privileges, all the land, to redistribute these assets in order that everyone could live in relative uh, peace and justice. That is renowned Israeli historian Elon Pape speaking with Khalil Bendib about his new book on Palestine. We'll hear more after a break. This is an encore presentation of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Also mentioned, and this is coming back to the parallel between Palestine and South Africa, knowing that so many people of goodwill, progressives, people who are not racist, who fought against racism, were disappointed at the outcome of a post-apartheid so far, a post-apartheid South Africa, where people are just as unhappy, if not worse, in many ways, at least economically and what has followed in the footsteps of apartheid. So you mentioned the importance in this book on Palestine of a more just and egalitarian economic system as part of the solution in Palestine. And this also may sound utopian uh, today because we're in the throes of this incredibly fundamentalist uh, economic neoliberal system. But again, that may not last forever. And you point out that this is part of the solution, that beyond just equal rights for everyone, you will also need more egalitarian system. Exactly. Let me put it this way. Uh, the two issues one has to say about the economic apartheid in South Africa that, that continues. On the one hand, it should not undermine the success of 
getting rid of the political apartheid. It's not the same South Africa. As I said in my last tour in South Africa to people who kept questioning me about that, I said, well, you have boarded the train to end the, the political apartheid and you reached the final station and now you have to board the train to end the economic apartheid. Mm. It doesn't mean the journey has ended. I said we in Palestine were still looking for the station <laughs> to begin the trip to end the political apartheid. So yes. uh, from our perspective, things have changed in South Africa, but we are fully aware of the road still not taken. Now, the second thing is that, of course, you can learn from this. You can learn, and, and we have an example in, in, in the form of the Palestinian Authority, in the form of the international neoliberal aid to the West Bank, hundreds um, of millions that uh, help unintentionally, I think in most cases, one should say, uh, sustain the, the Israeli control over the West Bank and do not change in any fundamental or meaningful way the reality on the ground, even if some of the donors would have liked to use that money for good purposes. And that means that when you have the time to talk about what I call the, the regime change, and you're looking for these small stations on the way to the big success, sometimes, for instance, working for social justice is no less important than working for the general justice. And the more the struggle integrates fully both values, the more it will become realistic. And, and there's a, one very good example. I don't think you can really build a different reality in Palestine if you don't redistribute land, because Zionism was built mainly on the expropriation of land. Uh, if there are today 12 million people between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, and half of them are Palestinians, and half of them are Jews, the Jews have more or less 85% of the land. That is, 6 million people have 85% of the land. Now, if there ever will be a goodwill or even a successful international campaign, this is not a basis for, for building anything new on the ground. Yes. And therefore, this has to be integrated into the new conversation, into the educational project that we are trying to, to push forward, as I do and, and others, on the ground in Israel and in Palestine, and also part of the international conversation about it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's quite simple in a way, because the two-state solution fits so well to the neoliberal paradigm, where you look at Israel and Palestine and you claim that you're using a very sensible measure called partition between two conflicting sides. But you give one side 80% of the land and one side 20% of the land, and you sell it as a fair deal. That's neoliberalism. That's exactly neoliberalism, the, the idea that economic balance of power determines what equality means. And in reality, it's inequality in essence. But again, this new speak of, in neoliberalism is very, is very, very important. Now, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic than you may be on this because I'm an historian, and I think something correct in the capitalist system in 2008 and all the cosmetic solution that seem now to work with everybody looking at the green, uh, you know, green screens and not on the red screen and Wall Street and all the other measures that you have to look at economic growth and so on. I think this is a facade. The reality is that 2008 exposed to people who haven't read Marx, who haven't been brought up as socialists, 
the sinister side of that system. It was very interesting to see how Naomi Klein moved from a totally focused ecological agenda to a far more sober, in my mind, agenda that connects capitalism to even to ecological disaster. I think all these things indicate that we are in the beginning of a process that at least, I'm not, I don't know if it will be successful, but uh, with all the distractions, and most, the most important of them is Islamophobia, among them, with all the distractions of what really preoccupies a person, even in the West, as if they're more occupied with terrorism than they are with their social security, all these things are not going to be sustained easily by the powers that be. I know that they are immense and they are omnipotent in many ways, but I think that they are finding it in, in the age of information uh, very difficult to continue to deceive, disinform, and distract people from the realities on the ground. And I think it would be great if we could integrate the Palestine issue to this conversation about social justice in America, in Latin America, and we are beginning to do this. In this book on Palestine with Chomsky, as well as in your previous one, you speak of the production, the all-important concept of production of knowledge as a fundamental tool for perpetuating the status quo and the continuation of the cleansing of Palestine. This as well is controversial because even outside Israel, this production of knowledge when it comes to the subject of Palestine is largely controlled by pro-Israel forces. Why is that such a taboo? I mean, Chomsky in particular refuses to take that into account. He downplays it uh, fiercely. And the source of this bias is never something that enters the discussion. And the, he claims that it's simply imperialism at work, a thirst for petroleum, etc. And a, a huge chunk of the American left and European left as well agree with that, or they follow Chomsky in that direction. Well, I think it's a very static analysis. I think uh, production of, of knowledge is, is a, a dynamic process. It's not that if you sort of take a still picture of it, then, then yes, this is a fair description. But if you try to video it, it's a slow movement, of course. It's a slow movement. It's a tectonic movement. It's not, it's not an earthquake. But, uh, I mean, it's a slower kind of <laughs> movement of, of blocks, if you want. But, but it's happening. I can understand how people can say it when you compare the kind of things that were written, taught, and studied on Palestine until the 1980s and compare it to, to our days. There's a fundamental change in the way knowledge is produced about Palestine. It is true that as in the case of the media, also in the case of the academia, the mainstream academia is timid, sometimes Islamophobic, and therefore these changes have not reached the important, if you want, basis of production of knowledge. And this also is connected to capitalism and neoliberalism. I mean, universities today work on the assumption that they can, like big banks, uh, determine which is an important publication and which isn't, and therefore the power, capital, and knowledge are, are still connected in a way that, that serves the Israelis, if you want, better than the Palestinians. Well, it serves anyway. anyone who's disempowered. doesn't serve anyone who's disempowered in society. But if you only look at this, it means you take it out of the context of the revolution in knowledge production we had through the Internet, for instance, in the growing sense of suspicion, even among academics themselves. 
about the way knowledge is produced and about the hierarchy of knowledge production. Again, these are, I understand what's happening here because these are very slow changes, and people would like to see maybe quicker, tangible results, and they don't have the patience to look at things in a more historical perspective. But I'm an historian, and, and I can see the change, and I can see the transformation. And I think that uh, Noam, for instance, kind of brushes aside the uh, decision taken by the American uh, Studies Association, the Linguistic Association, the upcoming decision of the Middle Eastern Studies Association. You know, he doesn't think that they're very important. I think they're highly significant. I think they're highly significant. We are beginning to scratch the edges of the power centers. Yes, these are not yet the power centers themselves, but we're very, very close. And to this, you have to add something else. On the ground in Israel, as the last elections have seen, the inevitable results, the inevitable, if you want, other outcome of Zionism unfolds in front of our eyes. One consequence was the horrible consequence for the Palestinians. But the other one, we suddenly realized that Zionism was a horrible trap for the Jews in Israel as well. The kind of policies that are now enacted, the kind of ideology that now sort of pours out of what is Israel today does not allow even progressive, uh, even Jews who were liberal Zionists, to remain indifferent to Israel. To Israel, And they are trying now to find a way of telling us, no, no, don't, don't identify us with them, even without doing anything. Israel is accelerating the pace by which it becomes a pariah state. And this will have an effect also on the production of knowledge. But I think we should never underestimate what has happened since the 1980s. It's impossible in any serious place to sell the Zionist narrative as a serious narrative. Those who do accept it as a serious narrative almost openly admit that they do it because either they got the money or they're just afraid of someone. But very few people will tell you that this is because it reflects what they really think about the reality. You mentioned earlier in our discussion what you call the Jewish lobby, what we usually call the Israel lobby, to not brush the whole entire Jewish community. But in reality, when you look at how it works in this country, certainly in the U.S., it's not just APAC. It's not even just the organized Jewish community, which is very right-wing and tends to be farther to the right than the, the community at large. It's also any number of individuals who do feel something for Israel and they, they feel sympathetic. So it's an entire group effort, even if it's only 30% of the community or 40%, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. 10%, oh, yeah. whatever. They're very powerful. And that is something that Chomsky is very strongly opposed to, the recognition of this fact. As a young man, he was a fervent Zionist, and he recognizes it. He admits it. Even a kibbutznik for a couple of years, if I remember correctly, in the 50s, he claims he's not in favor of a Jewish state in Palestine. But on the other hand, everything that he actually does, he talks a good game. I mean, he does criticize Israel in fundamental ways. That's good for him. But when it comes to the BDS, he's very ambivalent about it. Certainly when it comes to the academic part of it, he's against it. And when it comes to his two-state solution, he's fervently in favor, even though he claims not to be. He basically explains white man's burden, that the Palestinians who do want this don't know what's good for them, that he knows better than the Palestinians themselves. 
how do you explain this kind of attitude coming from such a, a brilliant individual who otherwise is quite progressive and, and even radical on so many issues? Yeah, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons we decided to have this conversation in the book, because I admire him. He was in many ways a guide, a moral guide, an ideological guide, not just to me, to my generation. And uh, yes, there was a creeping disappointment about some of his position on Palestine, and I thought the book at least helped to clarify some of them, and I think it was important to understand, I think, his, his position. I think there are two sort of conflicting, probably, impacts here. One is with a, a genuine concern about the power of American imperialism. He really thinks that we might be looking at the, uh, at the tail of the dog instead of the dog if we credit so much power to the Israeli lobby and we forget the basic objectives of American capitalism. I mean, he will tell you how uh, people who are 5% of, of the world hold uh, 25, if not more, uh, percent of the natural resources and so on. You know, all these, these amazing statistics about uh, how America needs in many ways economically and ecologically to control the world to keep its standard of living. And I think that, that's why he wants to contextualize it a bit wider. And that's the part I can identify. It. Where I think there is a problem is what you referred to. I, I, I think, although he's not a classical case of what we call in America P-OPS, progressive. Except, uh, except in Palestine. Palestine. Mm. I think that, like so many of his generation who went through a Zionist, period in their life, went through some anxieties as Jews and so on, they, almost in a subconscious way, they are afraid to let go of Zionism. I can understand it also because he didn't live here throughout these last uh, 67 years. He didn't see, he didn't see the disease, how it really works. He sort of read about it more than saw it. And then he hoped that there's a better version of it. If you remember in the book, he talks about the need to see the varieties of Zionism, and, and I don't see the varieties of Zionism from the point of view of the native. So I think that you're right. It's something that you notice it in many other European intellectuals, that on any other issue, you would totally identify with them, and somehow this exceptionalism about Israel creeps in, sometimes hidden, sometimes very clear, sometimes in a very ambivalent way, and then it's covered by kind of general comments, like Norm says there, well, basically, I'm against states altogether, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, I don't know, it's just, I'm not a psychologist, but I, having done the journey myself, I know what you have to liberate yourself from. And it's not easy. Yeah, there's a lot of fear. I mean, people are generally yeah. still fearful from what happened in the past to a lot of Jewish communities. And, exactly. It's the insurance and, company. And the bottom, I call it the insurance company. <laughs> exactly. So it's hard you, to completely... Is, maybe Israel is still an insurance company, <laughs> but, but your insurance agent is such a lunatic. <laughs> I would say, look for another insurance agent. <laughs> I Israel, I, I, how can anybody sell Israel as, as an insurance? But, but yeah, I think you're right. I, I think at the very, very basic, there's a fear. I sometimes think that the fact that from very early age I lived with Palestinians, I know the language, I speak the language, I shared so many things as friends, intimate friends, 
really cured me from this fear. You probably need through experience to, to go through it, you know. That's why I'm a great believer in in educational system here that we are building under the radar of the Israeli educational system and Arab Jewish from kindergarten level. I really think this is something that has a potential of, A, rehumanizing the Palestinians in the eyes of the next generation of Jews, but also dealing with these basic fears. You do mention in the book somewhere that this fear is conflated or compounded by uh, real racism, and it's hard to tell where one stops and the other Absolutely. begins. In the Israeli and pro-Israeli imaginary, a lot of the fear is self-constructed. It's this crazy Arab on the other side who, Absolutely. can I really trust the Arabs? And it's a product of the indoctrination and manipulation mm. that has been working for 100 years layer on layer. I mean, people here are exposed to this intoxication from uh, cradle to, to the grave. You are exposed to it in, in overdoses. And I think American Jews were also exposed to this a lot. And sometimes maybe it's difficult to totally clean your body from this intoxication, from this venom. And finally, as a last question, thanks very much for taking so much time this time, uh, Ilan. Last question is, when these books come out, these brilliant books that you've been producing, that oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we've been following, you know, we can't wait for the next yeah, one. Yeah, they, they will Honestly. come out. I, they will come out very soon. I mean, I have to also to have some space between books. I think that's one of the reasons to <laughs> delay some of the books. Uh, we do hope next year that we will see two books that I'm really right. happy about. One would be the comparison between South Africa. And the other one is, uh, really, I've written it now for 20 years. You will see when the book comes out why, why it took so long. But it was really trying to explain the history of the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as part of the general context of ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not so much a matter of accumulating new evidence, although this is part of, a major part of the book is, is exposing the Israeli decision-making between 1963 and 1968. It's a very important period. But it was, it was really finding the most persuasive way, which I thought was very important to the wider public, to explain why they were misled and taken by the nose with all this talk about the peace process, uh, the two-state solution, how it was really an organic part of what we talked about, of uh, a shield that was meant to cover up for the continued ethnic cleansing of Palestine. How are these books that we praise so much and are, are so important to establishing the history and is, is spreading some truth, how are these books received not on, in the mainstream, that's not my question, but on the left? People like The Nation, Amy Goodman, Democracy Now! and all that. It's an excellent question, and it's very interesting if you mentioned uh, you know, Democracy Now! or The Nation, these are the, the venues where people who stretch double Zionism to such an extent that if they would one day leave it, I don't want to be there to get it in the nose. It's like an elastic gum, you know? Mm. They have really succeeded in remaining uh, loyal to a basic Zionist idea and yet being very, very liberal and open-minded. And I think what I'm doing is too much for them. I just pinch the balloon. <laughs> and I say, guys, I'm sorry, you can't. And I know it, they really mean well. They somehow believe that 
there could be a Jewish state and it could be liberal, it could be democratic. The Palestinians would be happy with that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And they are jugglers of words and ideas. They are squares of circles. Amazing. And they're good people. I really love them. I'm not saying it cynically. I know them so well. Really, some of them I know personally. But I think it's time for them to understand that it's painful. That what we have, they have to do what I did. And it's not nice. I'm telling you, this is not nice to, to get out of the tribe. Yeah, it's not get fun. Get out of the warm embrace of the ideology. It's not a nice feeling. Ilan Pape is the author of several books on Israel, Palestine, and the history of Zionism, including his latest on Palestine, co-authored with Professor Noam Chomsky. This is an encore presentation of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.